Welcome, and let's first talk compliance. I'm Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager at First Healthcare Compliance. Thanks for tuning in. You can follow First Healthcare Compliance on Twitter at FirstHCC or on Facebook and Instagram at First Healthcare Compliance or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. On today's episode, we're speaking with Lauren Russell, an attorney at Young Conaway, Stargat and Taylor about how to combat workplace sexual harassment in the Me Too era. We will review some of the key issues in sexual harassment in the workplace, touch on identifying what behavior may constitute sexual harassment, understand key steps in avoiding and addressing sexual harassment claims, and learn more about addressing more general concerns of workplace civility. Lauren represents employers on a range of issues relating to compliance with local, state, and federal employment laws and constitutional provisions. Her counseling practice includes handbook revisions, effective policy implementation, and on-site training of legal compliance. Lauren also conducts high-level investigations of discrimination and harassment on behalf of employers. So Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. So Lauren, I have given some of your professional background, but, but why do you have a particular interest in this topic? Well, as you noted, I am an employment defense attorney. So, uh, of course, I am interested in any issue that's going to impact my clients. But beyond that, I've been a woman in the workplace since I was 14 years old. I'm a mother to two daughters. So these are issues that are near and dear to my heart uh, in terms of improving the lot of everybody in the workplace. These are issues that are, I think, generalized as women's issues in the workplace, but they impact everybody. My husband and I talk about these questions. I know that he feels some of the trepidation that a lot of men feel in uh, interacting with women in a professional work environment these days. So, uh, you know, I, I feel all aspects of this issue. Well, could you give us a sense of what sexual harassment is? Most of us think we know, but just in case, so that we're all on the same page. Sure. Well, I think that it's useful to start with the technical definition on this issue and then uh, explore what it really means. So the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, which is the federal body that's tasked with enforcing uh, anti-discrimination laws, defines sexual harassment as unwelcome sexual advances, requests for sexual favors, or other verbal or physical conduct of a sexual nature, uh, when, and then there are three circumstances in which that behavior is considered to cross a line. First, when submission to that conduct, that unwelcome sexual behavior, is made either explicitly or implicitly a term or condition of an individual's employment. So you have to, in layman's terms, you have to put up with my bad behavior, my sexualized conduct, in order to keep your job, right? Second, submission to or rejection of such conduct by an individual is used as a basis for employment decisions affecting such individual. So what does that mean? The second prong deals with what we call quid pro quo harassment. So that is when I say, if you have sex with me, I'll give you a promotion. Or if you refuse to have sex with me, I'll fire you. That's the most simplistic example of quid pro quo harassment. And then the third uh, condition in which that behavior crosses the line is when such conduct has the purpose or effect of unreasonably interfering with an individual's work performance or creating an intimidating, hostile, or offensive working environment. So those are 
uh, a lot of words that stand in the place of what we call um, hostile work environment harassment. So that is when um, I engage in crass behavior and maybe the first time it's not that big a deal, the second time it's not that big a deal, but it becomes part of a pervasive hostile environment. Um, so this is regularly occurring offensive conduct. So that's sort of the, the baseline that the EEOC uses when it's evaluating whether uh, sexual behavior in the workplace constitutes sexual harassment. That's a really complex definition and it becomes even more complex in practice because what we're talking about are interpersonal interactions, right? I mean, sex is a very real part of uh, adult life and um, the differences between men and women uh, are, you know, realities that we all have to deal with. You know, a lot of that is stereotyped, but there are, you know, I think some generally accepted uh, differences in communication, differences in life experience that would lead us to perceive similar conduct in different ways. And so this is a really complex concept, but I think that employers and employees are really well counseled to understand that it is the perception of the conduct that matters the most, right? So I could make a comment to somebody that I thought was completely benign. If that person's experience leads them to feel that my comment is sexual in nature or crosses a boundary that they're not comfortable with, first, that's the person who's going to go to the EEOC and report my conduct, right? So uh, if I intended to be completely neutral in my behavior, the individual who is offended by me can still go to the EEOC and file a charge of discrimination. So that's important to understand. And second, these are, you know, <laughs> the EEOC is going to credit that testimony, right? Unless it's absurd. Unless I truly said, good morning, Susan, and there was no other information that would shade my comment. The EEOC is going to credit that individual's version of events and, you know, we're off to the races. So it's really important to respect, you know, those, those differences in interpretation when they're reasonable. So why now? Do you have any sense of why the Me Too movement exploded the way it did in late 2016? You know, that's a really good question. It's a really difficult question. You know, of course, we had uh, a series of truly egregious incidents that came front and center in the news, right? So we had the Harvey Weinstein scandal in the background, very old conduct by Bill Cosby, which was criminal in nature, was floating around. And then we had a series of, you know, scandals that rolled out from there. So Kevin Spacey is very much in the news right now. There were very extreme allegations against Roger Ailes, who was head at Fox News. Les Moonves uh, at CBS was ousted. So certainly, the fact that those issues kept piling on to each other has helped to extend, I guess, the, the newsworthiness of this issue. But we're dealing with a broader context. You know, the first time that sexual harassment really made it onto the national stage was during the Anita Hill hearings uh, when Clarence Thomas was nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court. And following his confirmation and following what frankly, was um, some pretty brutal questioning of Anita Hill. There was a peak in uh, sexual harassment claims 
And that was an issue that the EEOC was dealing with in a very concrete way and trying to make headway on. And we went through this period in, in the American workplace, uh, and this is admittedly before I was an attorney and before I was in practice, but you know, we went through this period where uh, sexual harassment policies became uh, a routine part of employee handbooks, and training on the issue became popular, and then it faded away. And now we are seeing sort of a, a similar event, right? So we had all of these scandals come forward. In this case, though, there was sort of a waterfall effect, right? So it was not just one woman bravely standing up and saying, I was treated in an unacceptable manner. It was woman after woman after woman. And it was powerful individual after powerful individual. And keep in mind, sexual harassers can be men or women. Victims can be men or women. And harassment can be same sex in nature. So men can harass men and women can harass women. And as I tell my clients when I do these trainings, usually individuals of our same sex are the best harassers, right? Because they know the pressure points. You know, certainly the scale of the issue is larger this time, but, you know, it's hard to understand short of that why an issue that clearly is pervasive. I mean, these are allegations that we're seeing nationwide and it's not limited to a certain sex of offenders or sex of uh, victims. And, uh, you know, this is not a, a Democrat or a Republican issue. It's not an issue of the religious versus the non-religious. This is something that pervades every aspect of American life. So why was it sitting silently? <laughs> I wish I had a great answer for that. And there's been a tremendous amount of analysis. And I don't think we're going to see the end of that and, and really have solid answers for many more years. But uh, certainly, I think we've hit a watershed moment where issues of women's equality in the workplace are really front and center. And, and I think that that's an excellent opportunity for employers to seize on. For those who truly want to address this issue, now is an, a wonderful time to, to try and make headway. Because certainly, the uh, national ethos is, is, is moving in that direction. Has there been a boon of sexual harassment cases filed? So that's a really great question. We certainly have seen a tremendous number of really high profile cases, right? So there has been a groundswell of support for individuals who have been the victims of very powerful people. Uh, and we've seen a lot of that. Um, and that's gotten major national media coverage. Uh, the EEOC has reported that it has seen an increase in the number of sexual harassment claims, and I would suspect that going along with those increases of sexual harassment claims, they're also seeing a bubble in the number of retaliation claims because those two things tend to go hand in hand, uh, and we can talk about that in a little bit more detail later. But, you know, nationally, we're hearing this. Now, I can tell you in my practice, I have not seen a huge increase in the number of rank and file complaints, right? So the individuals who say, well, my boss tells off-color jokes and I don't like it, as opposed to the head of CBS's news division has engaged in a series of protracted and appropriate interactions. So we're seeing a lot of really high-profile allegations, but the, the types of normal workplace interactions, and I call them normal, I probably shouldn't. Um, the 
run-of-the-mill inappropriate workplace conduct is not being reported at any greater frequency in, in my practice. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to First Talk Compliance, and my guest today is Lauren Russell, an attorney at Young Conway, Stargat and Taylor, about how to combat workplace sexual harassment in the Me Too era. So there seems to be a lot of fear over false allegations of sexual harassment. What are your thoughts on this concern? You know, I think it goes, I think it's the the flip side of the coin um, in terms of this idea that, you know, there's going to be this this groundswell of, of harassment complaints and everybody is going to be coming forward, sort of shining light on the pervasive misconduct that has been going unchecked for decades. I, you know, as I said, in my experience, I have not a, a huge bump in claims. You know, certainly we're in an era where what is acceptable in terms of how we communicate with each other is changing very rapidly. People are having trouble keeping up, and that includes me, and I do this for a living, right? There are issues, for example, surrounding transgender individuals in the workplace. I work very hard to stay abreast of the most current recommendations from the groups who uh, the affinity organizations that speak on behalf of that segment of society, right? You know, I defer to those individuals with regard to how they want to be treated and how they want to be spoken to and spoken about. And I make mistakes and I get paid to do this. So, you know, I, I certainly understand the concern and how an average individual might say, you know, how do I keep up and how do I know what I can and can't say. Now, that being said, I I do not see, I have not seen, you know, a a whole host of claims where somebody's making false allegations. Usually what happens is somebody comes forward and says, yeah, I said that. Yeah, I I made that comment, but I don't understand why it's offensive. I I don't understand what the big deal is, right? So, you know, I think that the concern about false allegations is a little bit overblown to my mind. I think that there are some very sad stories. I don't mean to dismiss it out of hand. There are some very sad stories of people clearly being the subject of false and vindictive allegations. And when that happens, by and large, it comes to light and we deal with it. But I I, I would really encourage listeners not to be afraid of interacting with people in the workplace. Okay, so is there a reliable a way to avoid these claims in the workplace? I know you've you've touched on it some just now, but mm-hmm. do you have any other thoughts on that? <laughs> you know, I wish there were hard and fast rules. I really do. You know, how you deal with these issues depends a lot on what type of employer you are, what type of business you are. I say to clients that, you know, if, if drinking is not a part of your company culture, excellent, right? But I'm an attorney, and every single event that lawyers go to, there's alcohol, and it's usually free alcohol. And alcohol loosens lips, and, uh, you know, people say things that they shouldn't say. So, but, you know, a lot of employers are not comfortable prohibiting alcohol at social functions, for example. What I do say is if the employer's not going to put limitations in, I counsel my managers to set a rule for themselves, Right. If you're going to a company function, don't have more than two beers, right? If you're not three sheets to the wind, you're much less likely to say something inappropriate that's going to get you in trouble down the road. So, you know, avoiding alcohol, I tell people that 
certainly when there's disciplinary uh, action being issued, when you're having performance discussions with somebody, there should always be a witness in the room, right? That is good advice for about three dozen reasons. But one of them is that if somebody says something inappropriate happened in that room while you were alone with me, I wasn't alone with you. There's there's a person present who can can speak about what actually happened, and I uh, you know from an objective from an objective perspective, somebody who wasn't the subject of my alleged bad behavior. So I think that that's really important. And you know as you alluded and as I, as you alluded to and as I have said repeatedly now, being respectful, right? We were discussing a minute ago how difficult that can be. Of course, I know not to call you vulgar names, right? That That's very easy, and we should all abide by those rules. Uh, don't use pejorative terms in the workplace. And that includes, you know, in, in this context, words like bitch should absolutely be prohibited. Certainly anything stronger than that should not be permitted. Rap lyrics, rap music with um, pejorative lyrics, pop music of any kind with pejorative lyrics. That's just a, a segment of the music industry that's faced some scrutiny for those issues. But if, you know, if you have a workplace where music is being played, then that's something that you should avoid. Likewise, limiting talk radio in the workplace. That seems like a fairly inoffensive thing to play. I have seen, believe it or not, I have seen sexual harassment claims come from talk radio. And the reason wow. is that, yeah, I know. <laughs> that one's out of left field, isn't it? Right, yeah. Um, but the reason is that a lot of hot button topics are topics that relate to uh, sex or women's issues, right? Um, a discussion of the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings can very quickly devolve into a, a divisive discussion about what does sexual harassment look like and what, you know, conduct is acceptable between men and women. And, uh, you know, <laughs> if you're discussing what happens in now Justice Kavanaugh's background, it's very difficult not to talk about sex, right? I mean, those allegations involve sexual contact. contact. So things like that, abortion discussions, those are, you know, issues that uh, <laughs> you get pregnant because you have sex, right? It, it sounds silly to, um, to say that, but, you know, when we're talking about those things, when you're playing something that spurs conversations on those issues, you are bringing gender and sex into the workplace. And I would strongly recommend that those issues not be discussed. So drinking, talk radio, respectful behavior, you know, going back to what I said very early on, it's really important to respect somebody's stated position. This is a hot topic in sexual harassment, uh, and it's really tricky. If I am being subjected to behavior that I think is harassing, I have no legal duty to say to my harasser, stop it. And a lot of individuals are really bothered by that rule right? They say, look, if you have a problem with me, you should say something to my face instead of complaining to me, uh, complaining about me to a manager. It's not fair that I don't have a chance to correct my behavior first. I certainly understand that allegation or that, that, that complaint, that, that frustration with the law, but the law is the law. And the law says that I have no duty to confront you before I make a complaint to the company. That being said, a lot of times people do say something to the alleged harasser first. They do say, hey, you know, 
I don't like when you use the word bitch in the workplace. I don't think that's appropriate. Or your music is offensive to me. Or, you know, I feel like you're speaking down to me and I think it's because I'm a woman, right? When those conversations are had, a lot of times they're dismissed. And that's why the rule is that I don't have to confront you first, right? It opens me up to retaliation. And frankly, a lot of times those initial complaints are dismissed by the alleged harasser. I think that, you know, if we want to make headway on this issue, we have to take people at their word. If I tell you that I'm offended and I do it in a respectful way, then take me at my word and say, okay, you're offended and I'm not going to play that music anymore, or I'm not going to uh, use that language. I'm going to think more critically about the way that I counsel you regarding poor workplace performance. You know, there's room for all of us to learn and grow. And I'm certainly no, you know, expert in in the way that every single person wants to be communicated with, right? The The only thing I'm an expert in is listening to somebody and acknowledging that I need to take them at their word, right? We can't all keep up with the latest lingo regarding, you know, <laughs> transgender issues or sexual orientation issues or, you know, just what's hot now for you know, communication styles when counseling women so that they're successful in the workplace. Right? These are all uh, evolving subjects that people study on a, on a regular basis, and we can't all be experts in them at all times. I understand that. I accept that. And so does the law, by the way. The law doesn't expect us to be perfect. All the law says is that when you are confronted about conduct that somebody believes to be inappropriate, you need to stop the conduct. So if we believe each other, if we take our colleagues at their word and say, yes, I accept that you truly objectively or, or subjectively, excuse me, are, are offended by my behavior, whether or not I believe it's objectively offensive, I respect them enough to stop it. That would be a, a big stride for all of us. What about workplace relationships? So in this current mm -hmm. atmosphere, does it make sense to ban workplace relationships or start dating disclosure and consent contracts? I mean, people are people. So what what do you do about this? <laughs> That's uh, you know, one of the euphemisms for those contracts is love contracts, right. um, which sounds like some bizarre alternate reality subject that would be covered in a movie, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> one of those doomsday scenarios right. sort of feels. You know, I, I get that question a lot from my clients these days. And believe it or not, my advice has remained consistent, which is that those kinds of requirements are not realistic. And <laughs> I will make the disclosure at this point that my husband and I were colleagues and we fell in love while working together. And uh, he now works for a different law firm than I do, but if we had had one of those those rules, I certainly don't know how I would have stopped myself from, I mean, <laughs> I probably would have found another job or he would have found another job, but we wouldn't have stopped our relationship that blossomed into a marriage, for goodness sake. Right. So to tell people they're not allowed to date in the workplace, you know, you run the risk of losing good employees. Mm -hmm. If you make people disclose, they may well lie. And I will tell you that love contracts, making somebody say, I'm dating Bob Smith and our sexual interactions are consensual, which is what those agreements say, believe it or not, you know, they're not binding in court. I can certainly produce that document and say, hey, 
uh, she told us it was okay or he told us it was okay. And remember, men and women can both equally be the victim of sexual harassment, so it could go either way. But if that individual comes forward later and says, no, it wasn't okay, it was harassment, and uh, you know, I, I didn't like the way I was treated by my then boyfriend and who's now an ex, that's going to, that, that testimony is probably going to be credited by a jury, right? A jury's going to say, yeah, you know, of course you could be pressured into signing something that you didn't want to sign. Of um, course. The other, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, I was going to say, of course, of course, anybody yeah. can say that, right? <laughs> yes, and then the other side is things evolve, right? So maybe at the time I signed that agreement, it was a consensual relationship. And then we broke up and uh, my boyfriend became obsessive and was, you know, engaging in harassment inside and outside of the workplace. Well, things change and I can't sign a document that says, yes, it's consensual now. And I swear that forever and ever it will be. Nobody right, you're, supposed to, you're supposed to go to HR every time there's a change in yeah. your relationship. You know? <laughs> That's an excellent question, right? I mean, isn't that the logical outgrowth? And, you know, well, we broke up. No way, we got back together again. No, we broke up again. Well, we're working things out. We had a really bad fight at the bar on Saturday night, right? <laughs> yeah, we just wanted to let you know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my weekly Monday morning update to HR about the status of my relationship. <laughs> right. Huh? You know, we laugh about it, but, it, it you know, the, the logical outgrowths are kind of absurd. Exactly. Um, so, and, <laughs> so you know, I I don't think that those are great uh, rules. Now, a couple of restrictions I do recommend: managers and subordinates should not be dating, right? If I, if a manager and a subordinate begin a relationship, one of them needs to move to a different area of the company where they're not supervising one another. It not only leads to concerns about quid pro quo harassment, which is you know if, if the relationship ends and the person suddenly feels like they're being subject to negative treatment in the workplace, that's, that's a big problem. It also leads to more generalized concerns about uh, favoritism, nepotism, and that's not going not gonna to be a good scenario for anybody. So managers and subordinates should not date. Again, we're relying on people to come forward and be truthful and voluntarily disclose, but I certainly hold my managers to a higher standard than I do anybody else. We should go ahead and, and think about uh, wrapping up, but do you have any other uh, final thoughts for us? No. I mean, while I'm still standing up here on my soapbox, I reiterate these are complex issues, and uh, nobody should feel like they are – nobody should feel like their uh, group is necessarily a perpetrator just because they exist. You know, I have a lot of men after training come to me and say, you know, I just feel like no matter what I do, I can't do anything right these days. And nobody should nobody should feel that way. This is about making adjustments to the way that we've always interacted. I don't want people to stop talking. I don't want anybody to be fearful in the workplace, whether it's fear of being a victim or fear of being falsely accused. That's That should not be the goal of any of this. Okay, well, thank you so much, Lauren. I really, really appreciate you coming on to First Talk Appliance. I appreciate that. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for the time. Thank you. And thanks to our audience for tuning in to First Talk Compliance. You can learn more about our show on the program's page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at FirstHCC or hashtag First Talk Compliance. You can also email me at Catherine Short at FirstHCC.com. I'm Catherine Short of First Healthcare Compliance. Remember, compliance 
is the key to achieving peace of mind.